Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hello, and welcome to an extra special episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast about change. Today is our 100th episode. That is absolutely wild to me. I can't believe you're still listening. It took me years to start a podcast because, and I've always wanted to have one, um, but I've never done it because I thought that everyone would think I was shit and they would hate it and no one would listen and to think that you have supported this and told your friends and family about it and now it has grown to so many people listening and so many people participating and engaging and writing me letters and messages and asking for guests and subjects to be covered. I can't believe you stuck with me especially through a pandemic when no one was even going outside or commuting. You took time and you're in the fucking blur of time that was the last shit show of the last two years to listen to and to join me in this kind of it's an experiment of progress you know I'm the crash test dummy can I become less stupid can I become more informed can I become more tolerant can I alter my behavior can I find my toxicity and remove it and I do that very very nakedly in front of all of you because I want people to feel safe to do it with me I have been I'm sure we'll continue to be at times accidentally problematic and aggressive and unempathetic and unsympathetic. And I have learned so much on this podcast from not just our extraordinary guests, but from you and from your letters. I read as many as I can. And I'm very, very humbled constantly by the things that you teach me. And this podcast, and I know this sounds a bit ridiculous, but especially in what's been going on in the world, in a way that I could never have predicted, just makes me feel so much less alone because I feel like we're on this journey together and I feel like you're all as excited as I am to find out more things about yourselves and about each other. And I think that's extremely cool. And I feel very safe here in a way that I never have on social media. And I feel as though you listen in good faith and and when I'm wrong, you let me know about it, but you do it with kindness and pushing me to do better rather than pushing me to fuck off. And I, I love you for that. Anyway... Um, speaking of trying to be a bit better today or tomorrow than you were yesterday, uh, I have the perfect guest and I chose him for my 100th episode because I owe everything to this man. His name is Mike Scher, Michael Scher. He is the creator of The Good Place. And five years ago, six years ago, shit me, six years ago, he met me at an audition that I was forced to go to by my manager and I had no acting experience and for some reason he took a bloody chance on me and he gave me the job 
of my lifetime. I never, ever wanted to be an actor. I never thought I would be able to. I respect it so much as a craft that it was never something I thought could ever be for me. I thought you had to train for it for years and I'm (laughs) sure you still should. Um, But he just saw something in me and decided to give me a chance and put me opposite Ted Danson from my very first day and changed my taxes. I had no money. I had no money. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no visa. I didn't know how much longer I was going to be able to stick it out in America. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And he opened up this avenue that I could never, ever, ever, ever have conceived for myself. He just believed in me when I, even when I I, I told him not to give me the job <laughs> when he hired me, I, uh, I told him it was a mistake and I didn't know what I was doing. And he just wouldn't have any of it. And he inspires me in so many ways, not just because he's a great boss and a risk taker, but also because of his dedication to kindness, his dedication to trying to be a good person, his dedication to realistic improvement, and almost mostly his dedication to inclusion. Mike, from the beginning of his career, from SNL through to The Office, through to Parks and Rec, now The Good Place and other shows that he's going on to do, he is a big supporter of inclusion and diversity and not in pointless ways and not in gratuitous ways, not in box ticking ways. He believes in reflecting on screen what we see out in the world. And he what's the I mean one of the coolest things about that is that every fucking time he wins. He's one of the most successful and critically acclaimed writers in the world and showrunners and show creators in the world. And he has proved to the people who have the money and the power that including people brings in a bigger audience that you can win. Because not all these people are inherently evil and just want to exclude everyone and they're all white supremacists or, uh, I don't know, anti-gay or bigoted or whatever. A lot of them are just fucking greedy and afraid of spending any money that and afraid of taking any risks. And Mike isn't afraid of that risk. And the more we have people take those risks and win the more we see the market shift. Look at films like Black Panther, look at Crazy Rich Asians, look at Bridesmaids. When you include the people who represent the world, the world will come to watch. And fuck me, just what a great guy. To the point where he's written a bloody book about morality and philosophy, um, where he's taken all of the most intense and detailed and uh, sometimes quite boring Uh, philosophical works and he's read them all so that we don't have to and then broken them down into this very very clear uh, sweet unpretentious and and humorous relatable book about philosophy and even someone like me who left school at 16 was able to understand it and learn from it and grow from reading this and similarly to the way that I did from our show The Good Place which if you haven't seen it check it out it's like a oh my god it's like, like being it's just a hug. It's a fucking hug in a TV show. It makes you feel safer and warmer and cosier in this world. I love him. So, I love him so much and I owe him so much and I wouldn't have anything I have, any of the social justice work I was able to do. I was doing all that work 11 years before I met him and no one ever listened to me. And after he gave me the opportunity of my lifetime, I was able to finally be heard and I wouldn't have this podcast. I wouldn't have anything. And I... Oh God, I feel so grateful. And so he was the perfect person to have on this show 
and he's a real, real hero of mine. We get into lots of the Good Place stuff. If you are a fan, even if you're not, it's still funny and accessible. We talk a lot about the Trolley Problem episode, which a lot of people love. Uh, We talk about the responsibilities of the wealthy and the powerful. Um, We also talk about his favourite replacement curse words. There's just so, there's so much trivia and philosophy and inspiration in this episode. So if, like me, you are interested in continuing to learn how to be good, this is the episode for you. I'm dying to hear what you think. Thanks for being here for almost two years, a hundred episodes in. Millions of you have listened and you blow my balls off. Sorry about all of my language and disgusting stories. Thanks for putting up with me. Please keep listening and I will continue to do my absolute best to deliver to you the best possible podcast I can. I love you and I love Mike Sher. Here he is. Christ on a fucking bicycle. Mike Sher, welcome to I Way. <laughs> you know what I just realized? What? This is your podcast, so you can curse as much as you want and no one can tell you to stop. Exactly. But usually the, the problem is point. the problem is that you're on someone else's podcast and and you're and they're like, God, will you tone it down a little bit? But now this is yours. So you're this must be this must be incredibly liberating for you. Oh, you have no idea. It's uh that I actually have to try and cram normal words into all of the curse words <laughs> that I use on this podcast. Yeah. The weird thing is when you're not cursing. Yeah, so buckle up, Mike. <laughs> it's gonna be quite the experience. Um so I have many, many things to ask. I have so many things to ask and it's so nice to no longer be in a professional setting. I consider this not a professional setting. (laughs) A rank amateur setting, yeah. Yeah, this is just you, me and a few million friends just hanging out (laughs) and and, uh, being loose. Um, But first and foremost, I just want to say thank you as always. Thank you for giving me a job because if I didn't have the job you gave me, I wouldn't have a career. And if I didn't have a career, I wouldn't have this podcast. And so... (laughs) Uh, thanks for giving me this podcast. Basically, I will give you some shares of it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, um, that's a good uh, career move. Maybe is to just transition into becoming an agent, where I just take I, other people do all the work, and then I just take ten percent of everything they make. I feel like because you put so many people on the map, you should take like at least like a cheeky three to five. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Like Chris Pratt, Aziz, like all of us, none of us, uh, all of us would be um, living in cars were well, it not if, for you. If that if that were true, then really the person who should do that is Alison Jones, who is the the casting director who has cast Parks and Rec and The Office and and The Good Place and a million Arrested Development and Curb Your Enthusiasm and all these shows. Like she's the one who goes out. I mean, j- just to uh, right at the beginning here, let me just say this. I wrote the pilot for The Good Place and I um, and I described the characters and I sat with Alison Jones as I always do. And I said, okay, I'm going to describe a character for you. And I understand that this might be impossible to find, but this is the ideal situation. So the character is uh, South Asian mm-hmm. um, with an Oxford British accent. She also is extraordinarily tall 
which was a key because this was Eleanor's nemesis. And, and I knew Kristen was playing Eleanor and Kristen's not super tall. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it would drive Eleanor crazy if her nemesis were very tall. So a tall South Asian woman with an Oxford English accent and, uh, and incredibly wealthy and posh and, um, and with the sort of style and bearing of Grace Kelly. And I said, (laughs) there's no way this person actually exists so get find people who have two of these uh, uh, characteristics and then we'll rewrite the character in order to fit the description of the actual actor. <clears throat> and she said, uh, sounds good. And then like two weeks later, she was like, hey, look at Jamila Jamil. <laughs> and it was a, it was truly it was truly shocking. Like it was Allison is. um I, I, I sometimes feel uh, almost embarrassed for her at how. I talk about her as a, as a talent, but she is just, no, there's no one better at discovering uh, people and seeing, uh, seeing potential in people and understanding the, the, what makes people special. Uh, And you had never acted before. And then you walked in and, and in the audition, you said like, now this says that she has uh, an aristocratic British accent. Would you like this to be like the Royal family which sounds like this. And, we, and then you launched into a, a, an accent that was exactly the way that like they talk on the crown. Mm-hmm. And then you were like, or is it more like, you know, a, a sort of like a university accent, which sounds more like this. You did like 11 different variations of an English <laughs> accent. And oh my it, God. And I also, I told you that I had this ex-boyfriend. I can't believe I said this to you in the audition. I'd never <laughs> met you before. And I said, I had this ex-boyfriend who was so posh that when he would come, he would say, Hoorah! <laughs> and I will never not coming forget back to me the now, look yeah. on your face. <laughs> Do you? I've been in the room maybe ninety seconds yeah. before I told you. It was. It that was that's where that I was going to draw my posh accent from. Doing that so so early in the time that we knew each other was good. It was a good like litmus test for whether or not we would get along with each other. Because it was like, <laughs> if I can survive this opening salvo, then I think we'll be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I can't, I can't believe you did. I can't believe you did it. I can't believe you gave me a job. I had no, I, I had no belief that you would ever do that. I thought it was the, I felt like I was wasting your time. I felt like I was wasting Alison's time. I was kind of, I was, I really just thought I was going to be a writer and, um, and I just wanted to meet you, which is why I came to the audition because I was a fan. And then I told you the cum story and that was unfortunate. (laughs) That wasn't how I'd planned on it going down. Um, but I definitely didn't plan on you making an actor out of me. Well, and uh, I you're, appreciate you're, you're it. kind to say this, but um, I've uh, of the many lessons that I've learned uh, after having done this for a while now, um, the, the, there's one real, I think, truism, and it applies to writers and actors and directors and everybody, which is like you, it doesn't, I think that at some level, um, I don't know what you would call it. I guess like experience is overrated. I think there are writers who have never been in writer's rooms before and, um, you, but you read something they've written and they just have some kind of spark or voice or, or uniqueness about them. And, uh, you know, Greg Daniels hired me and Mindy Kaling and BJ Novak 
on the first season of The Office, a very high risk venture to adapt that show to an, to a, the American version. And none of us had any writing experience at all. Mindy was a playwright and BJ, I think, had written for maybe maybe one episode of one show. And I I was a technically had the most experience of anybody, but I was in, at a, Saturday Night Live, which is, you know, sketch writing has nothing to do with long form writing. And he rolled the dice on all three of us for this incredibly high risk venture. And I've talked to him about why he did it that way. And what he said was that you um, you can teach people to execute your vision of your show however you want them. Like if you just put in the time and the and have the sort of like patience to deal with uh, rank amateurs, then you can teach them how to write. And and if they haven't written for a bunch of other shows, it sometimes is good because they haven't learned a bunch of bad habits or learned how to write in a, in a way that is not the way that you want them to write on your show. And he just preferred people who were sort of... Um, who had who he saw potential in, but who weren't uh, veterans of multiple shows, and I think that's true of. I mean, look at Will Harper. Will Harper wasn't had been an actor for a very long time, mm-hmm. but he had never been a main character on a TV show. But then you see Will Harper do the audition, and you're like, "Well, that guy is the best guy for the job." Like, there's no um, you don't it is, if you can keep your mind out of the trap of saying like this person has never done this particular thing before, then all you do is say, who's the best in the audition? Who wins the audition? And you give the part to whoever wins the audition. It was a bit stupider with me because I was the only one who'd literally never acted. Um, <laughs> so that that was that was that was truly an, an insane it was insane it was an insane thing to do. Uh, and I'm I'm so grateful that you did and I'll never forget the feeling of like I had to lie down on the sidewalk when they told me that you'd given me the job. <laughs> and I just lay there for about half an hour at about 9.30 at night. I'm very lucky I didn't get like trafficked or something. Um, and I, uh, and then a few weeks later, I was standing in this gorgeous garden in Pasadena that was supposed to be the afterlife mm-hmm. opposite Ted Danson, who I now had to act with. And mm-hmm. it was it was the fastest learning curve of my entire life. And I honestly feel like I could do anything. Like, I feel like I could do brain surgery now. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like, <laughs> fuck it, you know? I've acted yeah. alongside 10 times. You should just show up, Give me the scalpel. Just yeah. show up at a hospital and demand <laughs> some some tools and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I've lived quite a kind of catch-me-if-you-can like life. So I feel like you added perfectly to that story. Um I, uh, yeah, I just think, um, I think that was mad. And I'm so fascinated by your decision to kind of give people that opportunity and to take the risk on all of us. I really like, I think it's really special. And I learned so much on this job, obviously about acting and about, uh, how, if I ever do make it as a writer and showrunner, like how, honestly like inspired I am by your method of of working like the the first thing you ever said to me after I'd gotten the job was you said I only have two rules number one the best idea wins whether it's the head writer or the janitor and uh was the janitor just work in the school why would a janitor be there no um uh, well, they're yeah, probably yeah, custodians yeah. of various exactly. sorts a custodian. Sets. yeah yeah um, yeah maybe you said the caterer actually and then you said and i have a no arsehole policy mm-hmm. at first i thought i was going to have to get rid of my anus but it turned out, <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that uh yeah you you really have a very strict policy of no one behaving badly to anyone it doesn't matter what level they're at and it mike it changed 
the entire environment on set because everyone knew that they couldn't just take their shit out on someone else. And I was working with you at the same exact time that we were seeing the rise of the Me Too movement. And I was learning about all of these like horrific, toxic sets. I'm sure, I'm sure you've probably seen it or heard of it or witnessed some of that in your time in Hollywood. And to work somewhere that genuinely just felt so um, safe and where everyone was happy at every single level, every crew member, just joyous, happy to be there. Everyone so sad when we finished that show was incredibly inspiring and shows everyone that that is fucking possible and that I think it I think it contributed to how successful our show was that there was this it was so easy to make comedy on your set because everyone was in such a good mood well I'm glad to hear you say that I mean you know that is it's easy to uh just declare things like that um and say this is the rule the actual execution of a rule like that requires buy-in from everyone, right? Like you, it, it, it's not me saying that. And then everyone listening to me, it's me and Morgan Sackett, who are our producer and David Hyman, another producer. And then it's also, uh, Ted Danson and Kristen Bell as the sort of like heads of the cast. And then it's also all the department heads. Um, it's Gay Perello in the props department and, uh, Kirsten Mann in the costume department. And everyone sort of has to be on the same page with something like that or else there can be little flare ups and problems anywhere. You know, it's, it's, uh, it is, it, it's not, it, it, you set the, uh, rule, but then everybody has to follow the rule and believe in the rule and think that the rule is a good idea. So that the benefit of having done this for a long time, largely with a group of people who remain fairly consistent from project to project is that everybody knows the deal coming in, right? You don't, you're not starting from scratch every single time. So we all worked together on, on parks and rec, you know, 15 years ago or more. What year is this? 2000? Yeah. Jesus. It's 15 years. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's obviously you don't always get the same people right? because people have other jobs or they're not available, but, you know, Steve Day has been the first AD on shows that I've worked on dating back 15 years. And Steve Day, the first AD's job is incredibly hard. He schedules or she schedules every single aspect of the show, has to kind of make the trains run on time. It is a job that it's incredibly high stress. He's He's being pressured from the from the production side and, you know, we're losing money if we go over and he has to deal with, uh, the, the actor schedules and the, and the DP lighting. Also my snacking problem. You particularly your snacking problem. It yes. was amazing. Like I have never, cause you know, like I've never eaten, uh, sort of craft services because I'd never been on a set before and mm -hmm. I'd also like wasn't used to American food and I mean it's just fucking it's like crack oh, there's so ridiculous. much salt and sugar and everything and our craft services was I'd say the best in the world and so everyone had to if I was had to be mic'd up everyone knew to do it at craft services if anyone needed to find me because they suddenly needed mm -hmm. me in the background of a shot that's just where I was I was never in my trailer I was always at craft it's, services it's, it's the the most difficult thing about <laughs> when a show's actually shooting is that you, no matter what your job is, you end up gaining 15 to 30 pounds because you're, yeah. it's a lot of nervous energy and a lot of downtime. And then you're like, what do I do? How, how do I kill the next 23 and a half minutes? 
And then you smell like freshly baked donuts that are being placed down on a table eight feet from where you're standing. And how do you not go eat one of those donuts? It's impossible. You it's know, not fair. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's great. It was great. And I loved every pound that I gained. I would completely <laughs> transform from episode one to episode 13 every single season. And Kirsten, um, who, man who was our head of costumes, never said a word about it, which is very rare in Hollywood because often like women in particular, we get very fat shamed. And she just never, never said a word about it. And we just all accepted that by about episode Episode seven, we'd have to start leaving everything open at the back. <laughs> and that would just be the way that it would be. And, and, and I, so I essentially, uh, it was very, uh, I would try at, ev- at all costs to avoid having to do anything where you would see the back of my dress. So mm. I would place myself deliberately in your shots, trying you to back get the up, front. Because I was wearing everything as an apron. Everything was, <laughs> everything was an apron. You're just wearing hospital uh, gowns by the end. Just yeah. wide open at back, <laughs> fully, feeling all the fucking breeze. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a, it was non-toxic at every single level. I think the most inappropriate person on set was probably me. Like I was probably the harasser with my right. bad yeah. language. Yeah. 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 I remember, well, God, I remember being disciplined like by HR, like at the very beginning. Did you know about this? Cause I no, kept on. What did you do? I kept on, English people have no boundaries and I found this really funny porn and I kept on showing it to people. Oh God. <laughs> week I was like isn't this hilarious and then someone must have obviously said something quite rightly and I got scolded and made to watch like a three-hour video at NBC. Well I, th- about, I think that if there is a harassment. danger if there's a danger of of getting someone on a set who's never been on a set it's oh, he's not English. yeah well leave that aside for a second but <laughs> the, the, you know it's less about will this person be up to the job of performing on camera because you watch the auditions and you just have a sense about these things. And it's more about like the sets are very specific sort of ecosystems that require mm-hmm. a lot of people to be working in concert. And, and they, they, you spend hours. I mean, you spend more time when you're shooting something, you spend more time with the people on the set than you do with your family every single day. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's usually 12 hours, you know, it's seven to or 13 hours, seven to 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. or something, or 6, 7 to 7. And so the the ways in which people behave, that this is why it's really important to have a kind of no assholes policy is because mm. it, it really can define your life. It can define the quality of your life and the mood that you're in. And it is not always possible by any means to have everybody drive home every single day feeling great and happy and fulfilled um, because pe- because everybody in every work setting rankles each other in some way and you get you have little frictions here and there and there are days when everything goes wrong and it's annoying. But if if it's a really toxic environment, then people go home and they hate their jobs and there's nothing worse than hating your job. It really is a, a terrible fate to suffer, to think every morning when you wake up, like, I don't want to go there. Like if and, and that is a fate that befalls an enormous percentage of the people on Earth. And considering the fact that our job is funny make ups and goof arounds, then if you hate your job when your job is that, then there's a real problem. Then that, then that is a failure of leadership and a failure of administrative policy. Because if you can't enjoy the process of making comedy, then, I mean, this is the, what are we doing? Like how, why in the world would we do this if it weren't the most fun thing in the world, or at least getting somewhere in the vicinity of being the most fun job in the world. 
So that really upsets me when, um, whenever anybody isn't happy at their job, it ought to be, we're, we're the luckiest people in the world. Like nobody, nobody has it better than us, really. Truly, like the, I agree. The, co- the combination of what, of what the actual job is and then how much we are paid to do it. If we yeah. can't be happy at work, then no one can. And I don't want to live in a world where no one can be happy at work. Also, I mean, <clears throat> you would have had your absolute ass handed to you if you'd been making this show about philosophy and how to be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking well, hell on earth. I mean, you would have got it worse than anyone else because of all the, you know, because we would have been called virtue now. signaler. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll, now I've written now written a book, uh, which is jokingly called "How to Be Perfect," but is about like what philosophers say about how to live a better life. And I, I think all the time, like, man, I am really sealing my own fate in terms of like, I can never now lose my cool in public or, or do anything (laughs) terrible because like, Oh, looks like you didn't read your own book, pal. Huh? Like that's, that's waiting for me out there. If I ever uh, act like an asshole. Oh, I mean, like, that's the story of my life because I've come out being all virtuous and loud. And so now if I make a mistake, it's honestly like I am the devil itself. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I'd I'd still rather try to be good and get overly punished uh, than not. Um, And this book that you've written is just so excellent. And I think something that my listeners will absolutely love because you have taken the um, incredibly complicated and sometimes quite boring long text of philosophy and you have uh, filtered it into a funny and accessible way for all of us to enjoy it, understand it and apply it to our everyday lives. And I loved the book. I learned so much from the book. And it was great because I think after after our show where I'd already learned so much, you know, kind of vi- especially via Chidi's character and also I think via all of us, like there are lessons trickled through all of us that I think applied to everyone universally. Um, but I then went and tried to read, you know, a lot of the books that Chidi had been talking about. And I um, I managed to feel even stupider than I had before yeah. I had tried. Um, and then I gave up That's right. and thought, fuck it, I'm just going to yeah. be bad. I'm just going <laughs> to sell drugs to children. <laughs> well, that, that is... That, this is the problem, right? The problem is, is that the books are written by the smartest people who ever lived, yeah. who devoted their entire lives to trying to figure out how we could be better people. And they're often really dull and boring. And it's just a shame. It's like I... I had this thought over and over again as I was reading stuff and struggling through it and not understanding it, even when talking to professionals who were helping me untangle it. Yeah, and you it. went to Harvard, all right? So you're <laughs> not did, normal. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just ended up thinking like, if if these ideas, which I think are so beautiful, could be, could be just be like delivered in a more pleasant way, they would be so much more helpful. And the, you know, philosophers aren't writing for normal people. They're writing for essentially other philosophers or academics or, or PhD candidates in their chosen field. And that's not what we all are. We're not that even, even the uh, truly bright and inquisitive among us are not professionals in when it comes to understanding the literature. And then, and then the final blow here is that they're often responding to other things that other people have written. And so if you haven't read those things, there are long chunks and digressions in their books where it's like they're, they're refuting some argument in some other text that it's came like the Fast years. and the Furious franchise. <laughs> That's exactly, exactly like what that. it is. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> like you're going to miss the references to Tokyo Drift yeah, if you haven't seen exactly. it. Exactly. So, so, um, so I, I, that was the impetus for this whole thing was just like, I want to just talk about this stuff, which I think is really beautiful and great and helpful and which I feel genuinely has helped me understand what it means to be a good person on earth. And I want to try to like, just say it like I'm talking to my friend at dinner instead of reading this, uh, you know, imposing 600 page tome in my living room in front of a roaring fire in a wingback leather chair. So, um, that was the idea. And I, I hope I succeeded at some level. Cause I, again, I really do think these ideas are great and I think they're interesting and worth knowing and talking about. I also like, you know, you and I have discussed this before, but like there's something about how being able to kind of go back through into like the history of philosophy from the first kind of original, the OG philosophers uh, uh, all the way kind of through as, you know, as the years progressed, everything got like a lot more complicated, probably because the world became more complicated, but it also became wankier. Do you know what I mean? It just felt like they were just wanking themselves off with like impossible ideals that that would then, I don't know if that like, I don't know if the motivation was to set standards so high that then we could never, we would spend the rest of our lives like pondering how to possibly achieve them. And that would keep these people in business or something, keep them relevant because we're trying to live up to these impossible fucking standards. Yeah. I feel, I feel, a, I feel a sort of way about it, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think that, I think you're actually like, giving them too much credit. Like I, I think that so much of what they did was it's pure thought. It's just thought experiments. It's like, what if we all did this? Or what if we all did this? Or, you know, this person says we should act like this, but I think we should act like this. And it's mm. all theoretical. One of the, one of the most famous and joyous episodes of our show was the trolley problem episode. Mm -hmm. And the trolley problem is a famous philosophical problem. The basic idea is you're on a trolley, the brakes fail. The trolley is going to smush five people who are working on the tracks. There's a lever that you can pull that will switch tracks and you'll kill one person. Do you do it? And then there's all these millions of variations. And what if you know one of the people, what if you're a doctor and there are five patients who need organ transplants? Are you allowed to kill one person? and harvest their organs and give them to the five people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason that I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to do a whole episode about the trolley problem, both because it's kind of the most famous philosophical thought experiment ever designed, and also because it's really funny. Like, that's a really mm -hmm. funny situation that you're going to smush either five people or one person, and it's up to you to decide which. And all of the variations are funny. Like, one one of them is, like, are you if there's a big, heavyset guy, like a big power weightlifter guy on a bridge over the tracks, are you allowed to shove that guy to his certain death and use his corpse to stop the runaway trolley to prevent it from killing the five people? Like, they, they get more and more absurd and sillier and sillier. Well, the real reason I wanted to do an episode of it is because it, the trolley problem brings to light to me one of the biggest problems with philosophy, which is in order for it to be helpful and useful, you have to be able to employ it in real time. And the, that problem, that scenario is just imagine for a second that you're not reading it in a book, but you're actually living it and you're actually on a trolley and you're careening on this runaway trolley and you're thinking about your own mortality and you're, and people are screaming and shrieking and the trolley's jangling and things are falling off the racks and you are supposed to somehow calm yourself and then either derive a Kantian maxim through your pure reason or make a utilitarian calculation. You're supposed to go like, what did I learn in philosophy class that could help me in this situation? And you have like three and a half seconds to make a life or death decision. There's simply no way that in practical reality, if you were in that exact 
bananas situation you'd be able to act. And so I just thought it would be a good way, that episode would be a good way to show like part of what is frustrating about philosophy is that even when the theories seem like you understand them and they make sense, that you have to be able to employ them. If you can't employ them in your day-to-day life, then what's the point, right? So that is, to me, one of the main frustrating things about all of philosophy is that the philosophers who wrote these theories didn't seem very often to be considering how difficult it is to deploy their theories in actual situations where you can either make a good choice or a bad choice. And so that's what that episode was really trying to get at. Yeah, Kant, we learn in your book in particular, kind of almost requires for you to be able to press pause on the world and step out for as long as you need to be able to make that reasoning perfectly. Exactly. In order to be this quote-unquote good person. Dominic Burgess, who who plays Henry in The Trolley Problem, um, asked me to ask you, what is your solution to The Trolley Problem? Because I'm (laughs) sure you must have spent fucking weeks or months considering this, maybe years. So the trick with The Trolley Problem is that when you are... you're presented with that situation, your your gut instinct, every bone in your body says, well, pull the lever, right? Five people dying is a worse outcome than one person Mm -hmm. dying. And that seems like pretty universally agreed upon. Mm -hmm. And that I believe it is correct to pull the lever. but Unless the the one person is Beyonce. That's right. And in which case you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you sacrifice just derail everyone. the trolley and you yeah. sacrifice yourself Yeah, <laughs> because she must be protected at all costs. Yeah. But I, the, the trick is, and this is like a sleight of hand trick. The reason that I think it's correct isn't just because there are more people who will die if you don't do it. Because if you buy into that theory, then you start being confronted with all these other situations in which you're making a decision purely based on the number of people who will die, which is not a good way to look at the world. For example, there's another thought experiment I read about in the book where you're on vacation somewhere and you're walking around and you come upon a local sheriff who is who has 10 people lined up against a wall and he's got a rifle And you say, what's going on here, Mr. Sheriff person? And he says, oh, this is how I maintain law and order in this town is every once in a while, I pick 10 people at random and I just kill them just to let them know who's boss. But now, since you've since you're here, this is a special occasion and I will give you the rifle and I'll let you just kill one person at random. And that will be this month's law and order uh, lesson that I'm teaching all of the locals in this town. And so if you're if you're just about the numbers, if you're only thinking like it just minimize the amount of pain and maximize the amount of of happiness in a utilitarian way, you might go, oh, thank God, take the rifle, aim it at one of these people and shoot and kill them. Now, if the the thing that this leaves out, this numbers based calculation is like, how do you live with yourself? Like, you know that this is a terrible law, that this is an absurd way to maintain law and order, that this is a a, a brutal and and horrifying way to live. And you are now going to be responsible for having murdered someone. And that's, you have to live with yourself. You have to, like, you have a sense of integrity and and of right and wrong. And even though you have prevented nine people from dying, you've still also killed someone in a way that you know to be absurd and wrong and bad. Mm -hmm. And so basically where I land in the trolley problem and where a lot of people land, this isn't like this is my amazing theory is it is probably right to pull that lever. But the reason it's right is not simply because one is less than five. The reason it's right 
it has a lot has a lot of other components to it. And there are there are you can draw Kant's theory into this, which is you can devise a rule that you would want everyone to follow if they were in this situation. And that rule might be something like minimize the uh, hum- amount of human suffering uh, whenever possible or kill the fewest innocent people you possibly can in any situation or something mm-hmm. like that. You can also say like, hey, if we were all sitting around a table devising rules for our society and we got to the part where we were talking about what the proper course of action would be in this kind of scenario, we would, might all agree universally that if we have the option to have less pain and suffering than more, we might all agree to that rule. And because we would all agree to that rule, that means it's a good rule. There's a lot of other ways to think about it. And they all circle the idea that we want to, you know, uh, prize human life and, and minimize the amount of suffering in the world. But it's a little more complicated than just saying, always just do the thing that leads to the fewer number of people dying because that can lead you, that line of thought can lead you to some really rough situations. Like it's okay to torture one innocent person in order to save two innocent lives. You wouldn't say that that was the case. Like we wouldn't allow that as a society. So it's, it's not really about what the right decision is in terms of pulling the lever. It's why is it the right situation or why is it the right decision to make that, that deserves our thought and attention? I feel like I, it was in my head a lot, um, you know, because I was working within like social justice and I'm an advocate and there was a period of a few years until everyone stopped doing it (laughs) because I was so annoying. Um, (laughs) But everyone was selling a lot of diet shakes and diet products and detox products to kids. And I was very angry about it. And there are a few individuals I called out some of whom are related to Kris Jenner, um, others who aren't. Uh, And I was in this scenario where I was like, I don't really want to confront or embarrass any of these individuals who were just, you know, participating in a capitalist system and maybe don't, I don't know if they know any, but I think they do. But anyway, fuck it. Um, My point being that I was like, do I, that no one's listening to me privately. Do I try to stop all these other kids from going down the road that I went down when I developed an eating disorder because I had irresponsible idols, you know, and stop them from buying these products and therefore call out and maybe take away the money of and slightly harm the reputation of a few. Mm -hmm. And I spent my time constantly going with the trolley problem. The way that I felt about it is ultimately maybe I'm a bad person for embarrassing someone or, you know, taking away any of their happiness as an individual, but I've pulled the lever to try to to stop all these kids from shitting themselves to death, you know? <laughs> well, That's a noble the- <laughs> goal. I mean, but, but see, this, this is what's tricky about the trolley problem too is, and this is obviously like a, this is sort of a cousin of the trolley problem or something, but w- what you're doing in that scenario, it has a different moral calculation because you're talking about some of the richest and most powerful people on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And the richest and most powerful people on the face of the earth have a much greater responsibility right. to act in certain ways or to advocate for certain things or not advocate for certain things. Because when they speak, when the average person says something out loud, nobody hears them except whoever they're in the room with. When really rich and powerful people speak, the whole world hears them. And so that's just, I'm sorry. There's no way around this. You have a greater responsibility to make sure that what you're doing isn't harmful or bad because a word from you, I mean, look at Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump is the president of the United States. I'm and sorry, has I have a, no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, he's, he was, <laughs> used to be the president. And he has a rally on January 6th, uh, 2021. 
And he says, hey, everyone who's listening to me, go to the Capitol and stop the election from being certified. And then a bunch of uh, very, 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 very bad things happen. And now his attitude is like, well, you can't blame me for this. I, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. And it's like, you, you, this is the classic <laughs> yelling fire in a crowded theater situation. Like you are, when you are a person who everyone is listening to, the things you say have a greater effect on the world than if you're just a person alone in his or her apartment watching TV. And so the, I, I think that when you are, when you're punching up, like that, when you're mm. saying to people uh, who are among the richest and most powerful people who have the broadest, uh, loudest microphones, hey, the thing you're saying is causing a lot of harm and you need to understand that. I don't think that's ever wrong. I really don't. I think that it, it's entirely warranted that you um, that anyone comment on the and try to lightly shame people who are causing harm to other people. Yeah. There's a I there's a lot of writing about shame. And, and it's very interesting. And there's a whole section in my book that I won't get into right now because it takes too long about a situation in which I was shaming someone who did not deserve it. And it's, it was a, it was a kind of a watershed in my life because I realized. I love that too, chapter, by the way. Just thank to say you. That. Yeah, I realized way too late that I, what I was doing was wrong, but, but Aristotle, uh, who 2,400 years ago said that a person who has who doesn't feel any shame has no sense of disgrace. And if you have no sense of disgrace, then you will think that there are no repercussions for your actions, that nothing that you do or say uh, is your fault. And mm. you will live your life thinking that you essentially can do whatever you want and it's all fine. And that's bad when you're an average person. But when you're a really rich and powerful person, having no sense of disgrace or having no feeling that anything that you say or do is wrong or can be, bring harm onto other people is straight up dangerous. It just people die. People died that day. People will die uh, if if people advocate. I mean, I think of this a lot now, and this is an area that I, I want to caution by saying I fully do not understand. But there are all these celebrities who were endorsing cryptocurrency and NFTs and all of these kind of complicated new financial instruments. And I don't know if these things are good or bad. I really don't. I don't, I don't fully understand them. I don't pretend to understand them. But what I do know is I'm reading a lot of stories about people who are mortgaging their houses and buying NFTs of, of monkeys with funny hats on because what they see is that these things are selling for outrageous sums of money and they're, they want to make money. And so they're going deeply into debt in order to do this. And then I read other stories about how people are reporting this NFT of this thing just sold for $1.8 million. Isn't this amazing? Everybody get on board. And I then think you it's read money laundering. You, well, yeah. That's and then you also, and then you also read that, oh, yes, it sold for $1.8 million, but the person who made it gave their friend $1.8 million. Then that person in quotes bought end quote, this NFT for $1.8 million. And essentially just handed the money back to the person who created it or whatever. And so suddenly it's like, well, this didn't, this isn't a real thing that is accruing in value or uh, amassing value. It's, it's a scam. This is a scam. That's a, that's a classic pump and dump stock scam where you're inflating, artificially inflating the value of something in order to find other people who will be suckers and will pay you that money for real. So though, if you are those, if you're those celebrities, or if you are the, the uh, a person with a bully pulpit who is, um, who is advocating this stuff, I just really hope that you understand it more than I do, <laughs> because if you don't, 
you are potentially causing a lot of harm to a lot of people who can not afford harm in the way that you can as a rich and powerful person. You, if you lose two million bucks, uh, celebrity X, uh, nothing will change in your life because you have $300 million. But if you're an average person who mortgages his or her home and who goes deeply into debt in order to buy a picture of a funny looking monkey with sunglasses, and then the whole thing turns out to be a scam, that person's life is ruined. And I, 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 again, I don't fully know what I'm talking about. I fully acknowledge that I fully don't know what I'm fully talking about. However, it seems real risky to me. And I don't think there's ever a problem in raising your hand and saying, hey, rich and powerful people, you have a greater responsibility mm. in the things that you say and how you say them and the, and the ways in which you're suggesting to other people who are not as lucky as you are and not as fortunate as you are. Uh, to tell those people what to do or how to live their lives because yeah. they can ill afford the kind of mistakes that you can afford and uh, and still be okay. So what you're saying is I'm basically a great person, but maybe I didn't need to word it in ways that I sometimes did. Like when I said, I hope that all these celebrities shit their pants <laughs> as a, as revenge <laughs> for all the people who they made shit their own pants. I mean, look, so is that what you're, you're, that's what I'm hearing from this is that, I could I, work on my flavor, right? Maybe, but sure. Essentially, my heart's in the right place. Right? I think I think that's okay. right. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know, you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, 
luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Yeah, I I really like I I love the way like the trolley problem like sparked kind of three years of conversations like that I've I've it's one of the things that people speak to me most about when I put questions out to the audience asking them like who they would what they would like me to talk about I, I'd swear about seventy percent of the questions were seventy <laughs> percent of the questions were about the trolley problem ten percent of the questions were. Um, why did you finish the show? Which I'm not going to make you get into. It was perfect. Sure. That's why you finished the show. You finished the show because <laughs> we'd come to our perfect end. And we, I think some people think we got cancelled. We weren't cancelled. It was a, a really well executed decision to like leave while we were on a high. And, and I love it. Yeah, I love the, the, the simple answer, if you want me to answer it, is just that the story was over. Like we were yeah. telling a certain story and we told it exactly the way we wanted to. We started, the writers started talking about the end of the show after the second season. We started saying like, we need to figure out what, this is advice I got from Damon Lindelof because who's sort of like my, my writing spiritual uh, advisor. Um, he had executed uh, an incredible um, limited run show in The Leftovers, which was happening as, as I was developing the show. And I, um, I sat down with him at the beginning and said, like, I, I, I haven't really written a show that you would ever call science fiction before. Mm. And this is a little bit like science fiction. And I just said, like, what are, what's the, what do I need to do? Like, tell me what to do here. And he, his number one piece of advice was know where the end is. Like, have, it, have an end in sight and write toward the end. Because if you don't, you'll end up sort of spinning your wheels. And when you're working on a kind of show that has is heavily serialized and has all these cliffhangers and moves at the speed with which our show moved. Um, you, if you, if you don't have an, a sense of when it's going to end, there will be whole, you'll write yourself into these weird loops and just like run in place and people will get bored. I mean, he created lost. He knows what he's talking about. Right. I was about to say, right. That, that a lot of people I think felt like that show. I was one of the most magical concepts of a show ever. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the strongest first seasons of any show in history. And that show went on longer than perhaps it needed to. And I think a lot of people didn't understand why. I accidentally ended up sitting next to Damon on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. And we spoke about it for five and a half hours. <laughs> and it was honestly like, because I'm such a fan of his work, I got to talk to him about that and his philosophies and how in the case of Lost, that was just taken out of his hands. Yeah. Like that was not his specific decision. He wanted to finish it where it would have been fucking perfect for it to end. Yeah. But when you get involved with studios, it's amazing that NBC, in spite of the fact that we were such a runaway kind of hit, and like kind of, you know, we were so beloved that they gave you that kind of autonomy. Well, the world has changed like, a lot. The cow. Yeah, yeah. The, the TV world, the world of how shows actually are financed and make money has changed completely from Lost until The Good Place. And, and you know, when he was making that show, the goal was simply as many as possible forever. Go forever. When a show is making money, it's there's a certain amount of money it makes per episode because it's being sold into syndication and blah, blah, blah. And so it's every episode equals X dollars for the people who made it for the studio and the network and everybody else. And so it was just 
go until you die. Like just do it forever and ever and ever until you die. <laughs> By the time the good place was being made, things had completely changed and suddenly right. Netflix had come along. And from the second the show is on in the first season, it's profitable at some level because Netflix has come in and said, we'll pay you X dollars per episode. So the, the, there isn't there now it's not the same pressure to do something forever as there was back then. And when you look at lost, you know, the, the time that people got frustrated with lost was in like season two and three, when it felt like they didn't really have, uh, they were, there, there was no point on the horizon they were aiming at. And as soon as they got together with the studio and said, we need to end this at a certain time, we need to know that we're writing an end game. That's when you get that finale, spoiler alert from 20 years ago, you get that finale of, I think, season three, where you realize it's actually, you've been, you thought you've been watching flashbacks, but instead you're watching flash forwards where they've gotten off the island. And then Jack ends that season by saying, we have to go back, we have to go back. And suddenly you get chills and goosebumps in the way that you did in season one. And you're like, holy cow, this is amazing. And then from that point on, the show was incredible. It was so good again. It got great. So he really said, like, you have to have an ending in your brain. So we started talking about the ending of our show in season two. And we knew and like when I thought about what the, I wanted the ending to be, it felt like I think this is like four total seasons. And we just kind of stuck to that plan. And I'm so glad we did because it feels like we never wasted any time. Every single episode of that show has a really important purpose in the bigger story that we were telling. I have um, a few fan questions that I have to ask you about The Good Place and right. about your own philosophies that I want to make sure that we get to before we get out of this. Um, one of which is, <laughs> it's as if I'd written this myself and I swear I didn't, <laughs> but what would The Good Place equivalent, because obviously like anyone who's watched the show knows that we have like forking instead of fucking and you know, whatever. Sure. Um, although you let me say wanker as wanker on TV and you don't understand what a big deal that is because in England we are not allowed to say that word on TV but because it's not really recognised as a curse word in America. I figured I was we able could to get say, away with it, yeah. I, I feel like I deliberately tried to fuck up a few takes just so I could say it again. <laughs> in that scene with my sister Camilla who continues to haunt me to this very day. Um, I uh, so Someone wants to know what the good place... Uh, equivalent would have been for the word cunt. Oh God. <laughs> I, I, that came up more than once, that question. Um, well, let's see. Could it be um, can't? <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that. That's a better answer than what I was going to say. <laughs> um, my favorite one that never made it to air. What was your favorite one of the like replacement swear words? It's hard. It's hard to beat um, in the moment that Eleanor realizes what is really going on it's holy mother forking shirt balls sure, yeah <laughs> which which is isn't like you know it wasn't the the um uh the you know, the most creative one because we had said most of that stuff before but that moment is so perfect and the, her delivery is so perfect that's the one that comes back to me all the that most whole, I think. Ooh, that whole moment that whole moment of ted acting the transition of oh. good to bad and being in the room being up front front row for that Honestly, like Mike, of all the things I'm fucking grateful for, I'm grateful to have been in the room for that moment. That was well, that the, was that was one of the top like five moments of my entire I'm, life. I'm just I've, grateful to him because if you remember, the way it was written was Eleanor says this is the bad place, and he immediately just um, he immediately just like goes God, God damn it, and like throws a temper tantrum. And we had done it a few times, and it was always funny and great. And he did that amazing thing where he flopped out on the chair and then just petulantly, the petulantly pushed the cactus <laughs> off the thing. But then I was sort of talking to him, and I was saying like, 
I don't know that I, I, th- I think this is good. I think it's good. And he was like, let me just try something. Let me try something different. And I said, great. And that's when the evil giggle came out. And the evil giggle is so much better than what we had written. And it was just the work of like one of the great actors of our time being super in the moment and super aware of, of his character and everything else. And that take we used was, we did like five takes of the eagle, evil giggle, but that take we used was the very first time he did it. Cause it's so perfect. Oh God, I loved it so much. Um, but yeah, no, mine mine was one that was said and didn't make it to air, but it was soak my deck. <laughs> and that I was, I've always been sad that, that, that one, we yeah. couldn't give that. I might name this episode soak, <laughs> soak my deck. My deck yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Was, it's a really good that one. That was truly like a, a great moment. Um, <laughs> also just like, I wish more people knew how much Manny Jacinto uh, improvised, like how yeah. how fresh every single take of his was. What a funny man! Like ha- fuck him for having those cheekbones and then having that brain. Just obviously, it's not, like it's not outrageous, you're not, uh, out of control. You're not supposed to be like the world's greatest chef and also a star baseball player. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. what I feel about him. Is like you're not supposed to be this funny and good at acting and also look like that. It's not fair. No, Leave something re- for the rest of us. It's extremely rude, actually. <laughs> it's uh, very rude. That's right. I was I was once trying to describe him uh, in an interview, and I was like, truly, and I, I and I we have completely platonic relationship. But when he walks towards me, it always feels like it's happening in slow motion. That's yeah. the only way I can describe how, how handsome he is. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I got to kiss him in episode two, or season two, I think. Season two, yeah. And um, and James uh, is absolutely fine with that, except when we watched that together, he immediately had to kiss me better than Manny kissed me, which is one of the funniest moments of my relationship. He was like, I'm fine with this, I'm fine with this, and then gave yeah. me the kiss of my life. And then he just um, got down and started doing push-ups. Yeah, yeah, and just, exactly. <laughs> Dem- demonstrating his sexual fitness. Yeah, doing yeah. Fa- face roller to make the cheekbones more defined. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, that was mine and Manny. Both of us had only ever kissed six people before that moment, so that was really? both of our seventh kiss ever. Wow. Uh, he's not counting it. I am because I need to beef up my numbers. Do you know what I mean, Mike? Because yeah, I'm I mean, almost thirty-six. If you don't count it, that means that in your head you've never actually kissed Manny Hasinto. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's not fair. You, yeah, you did. I saw it. I he registers camera. that it doesn't count because it was contractual. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm adding him to my list. But isn't that so sweet that we were each other's seventh kiss and we were, we were sweating. Oh my god, we were sweating. We were fucking like sliding off each other. <laughs> It was so intense. <laughs> but thanks for letting me kiss Manny just in tow. Thanks I mean, for letting me dance with Ted Danson at two o'clock in the morning with surrounded by fairy lights while you played Unforgettable by Nat King Cole. Mm. It was uh, truly the best. Um, okay, so a lot of people want to know how The Good Place would have changed had you had it been post-pandemic. I've thought about this a lot recently. I was I wrote the entire book during the pandemic. So I was sort of grappling with the same ideas um, that the show grappled with, but in this completely different context. And I, I think the answer, which maybe is disappointing, is I don't think it would have changed at all. Because one of the great things about setting a show in the afterlife is we didn't have to deal with news of the world. Mm-hmm. We did not have to have the characters weigh in on Donald Trump because the characters died before they knew that Donald Trump was president. And so we were able to talk about issues of ethics and moral philosophy and, and moral behavior 
without having to be specific about real things that were happening in the news, which I think was a great benefit to the show because those things are hot button issues and people feel very strongly about them one way or the other. And they feel then they're there. It's like, to me, it's almost like these, this, what's happening on earth for real in American politics or Boris Johnson throwing parties in his, in at Downing street while, while telling everyone not to get together for Christmas. Those are like, flashpoints that are very blinding they they're like they it's like the, the it's like the sun that blots out all the other light so i think maybe we would have done maybe one or two flashbacks to some small issue related to the pandemic i don't think the show itself would have changed because i think that we're, the the pandemic revealed a bunch of symptoms of a disease which is that there are wide Dis- disputes and disagreements about how to behave ethically on earth and the pandemic revealed those problems and put a magnifying it, glass on them like it was exactly. so it was such a heightened version of what we had on the show but i think ultimately the same and I, eth- look at how much has happened in the world in the last hu- fucking few hundreds or thousands of years since all of these teachings came about like yeah, they still exactly. all apply and i think we we were after a more a more general discussion of good and bad than mm-hmm. we were about like, how, how are you good and bad in this one way or it related to this one issue? So I actually don't think there would have been that much of a difference. Yeah. We saw, um, you know, you and I had this conversation before about the fact that we saw every single character of the good place embodied in, in humankind in the last yeah. two years. So mm-hmm. we had the kind of people who sort of didn't feel one way or another, particularly who just wanted to be left the fuck alone and kind of live slightly selfishly. I'd say that was pre good place, Eleanor. Mm hmm. And then we had Jason who started the pandemic and spread it (laughs) Uh, because of the the meme that's now famously gone around the world of that line from season three, where he talks about a bat. um, And we had Tahani's who were, who were sort of self-aggrandizingly raising money and being out in front of it. And doing the Imagine video and mm -hmm. the I Take Responsibility video and all the other things that celebrities did that was so fucking cringe uh, (laughs) in the last two years. Um, I feel like a lot of Tahani's came out came out of like hiding that's well what, you know i i always intense. i feel like you and i also talked about this at one point but i i was very i had a lot of sympathy and empathy for tahani because i felt like her she did do a lot of really good things which is why she thought it was very natural that she was in the good place after she died mm-hmm. um but and also her Achilles heel was that she just wanted people to love her more. And she was sad that pe- that her parents didn't love her more and that her sister didn't love her more. And in terms of when you're talking about motivations for um, bad behavior, that's a pretty relatable one, I think. And that's, that's a pretty understandable one. And I always felt like of all of the, you know, of, all, of the four humans who were put into the bad place and tortured by Michael... I always felt like her Achilles heel was the sort of softest of the Achilles heels and the most human. Yeah, I think a lot of people really resonated with her and also her story with her parents and her sibling rivalry. Yeah, it was uh, it was really lovely to see that kind of play out in such a relatable way for people. I mean, she also taught me a lot because I think she knocked the performativeness out of me Um in seeing like how controlled she was by needing everyone else's approval 
I think it taught me to stop seeking anyone's approval. And I think a lot of people probably, probably like see me on Twitter and don't like know anything else about me. And they think that I'm, I'm seeking everyone's approval in doing these, these acts. But I actually, because of Tahani, because of the way that you wrote Tahani and her growth, don't give a shit now about <laughs> whether or not anyone else thinks I'm doing the right thing now or the good thing now or why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the long game because I don't want to go to hell like Tahani. <laughs> I don't want the moral corruptions, the moral desert of it all. Like I'm willing to be seen as the annoying one or the bag or whatever. Um, I'm willing to be judged now and not be approved of by anyone as long as I know that I'm doing, I'm living by what I think is the right thing to do in the long run for as many people as it's, it's possible. Hard. Do you it's know what hard. I mean? It, yeah, it's hard not I to want to I am fucking approval. annoying. I know that, but like, I'm trying. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> no, I was just going to say that it's, it's hard, not, it's, it's very natural. This is what I mean is it's a, it's a very natural thing to want approval. We're taught to want approval from our parents and teachers and, and peers and everything else. Like, I don't, I don't. Um, I don't begrudge anybody, honestly, the desire for approval. I, I think that the trap becomes when the desire for approval starts being the thing that's actually guiding your action instead of a thing that you just hope will happen when you do whatever it is that you think is the right thing to do. If, if the guy, Tahani's real problem wasn't that she wanted approval, is that she allowed her, her desire for approval to actually dictate what she did with her life. And so the things that she was doing weren't, she wasn't doing because they were the right thing to do or they were a good thing to do or a, a kind or empathetic or other directed thing to do. She was doing them because she was aiming solely at that approval. And that's the, that's a, it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one because 100%. I, I, I want, I want people's approval. Everybody wants people's approval. How could you not want people's approval? You want to believe that when you do things that you believe are good, that people will say like, I agree. I think that's a good thing to do. It, it's just that if you, if you do them because that if that's your goal, if -hmm. instead of flourishing, which was what Aristotle thought was everyone's ultimate goal, like flourishing as a human being and having the right, these, all these virtues in the exact right amounts, that was his goal. The Kant's goal was to, to act out of a duty to follow a, a rule that you could believe is that you could will to be universal, meaning that everybody would do it. That's his goal, his ultimate mm. goal. If your ultimate goal is simply, I want people to applaud and click the little heart button on Twitter, then you've lost sight of what you actually think is good and bad or right and wrong. And you're only doing it for that reason, which I think is where the, where the problems come in. So someone has asked, like, as human beings, are we capable of being truly altruistic when our inherent nature seems to seek out self-preservation? I mean, I guess you've kind of just answered that. Like, yes. Well, um, yeah, like th- this is a very commonly asked question, right? Is like, yeah. can, is there any such thing as a purely selfless act? Because a purely selfless act would be done in a vacuum and no one would ever even know you did it. And very few people ever do things in a way that no one knows that they did it. And I, I think actually where I land on this is I don't care. Like there's a section in the book Same. about, about donating to charity where Tahani gets discussed a little bit. And, um, you know, the question is like the, the, the the idea is that like the highest level of charity would be done anonymously, right? The most, the most morally pure act you could do in the world would be to give an enormous amount of money to some very worthy cause. And you do it anonymously because that takes off the table, whether or not there's any aspect of this where people are going to 
see you and think of you as a good person. And I, I, I thought about this a lot. And I think that where I end up is I don't really care why you're giving money to charity at the end of the day, because the world is very complicated and sad. And there's a million causes that are worthy. And there's bil- literally billions of people who are in some state of distress or anxiety or fear. And this is just a numbers game. And I I think there is probably more value. If Oprah Winfrey gives $100 million to some incredibly worthy cause and um, does it anonymously, that's an incredible thing for her to do. Oh my God, of course, Oprah is the best. But if Oprah Winfrey gives $100 million to a charity, to a worthy cause, and then she goes on TV and says, I'm Oprah Winfrey, I just give $100 million to this cause because I believe in this cause, a whole lot of other people are going to go like, well, Oprah Winfrey has given this her seal of approval and I trust her implicitly. And now I am also going to give to that cause. And I think that's a better outcome. And I don't particularly care if, if Oprah, if one part it's of more Oprah utilitarian. Winfrey's, yeah, right. exactly. Uh, exactly. Like, yeah. I think it's I, like, I, think I, I stand by if, that too. If some part of her is doing it because she wants approval, I don't, who cares? Like, great. The more, the better. Like the, we are, we are not in a position with the problems in the world right now to draw lines of distinction and stick to them in terms of like what's better or worse. I think we just got to reallocate resources massively. We are kind of sort of ending up in a, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, like a philosophical nightmare at the moment, because there is so much moral superiority and moral perfection kind of being demanded specifically on Twitter. I don't think that exists for 80% of the world, but on Twitter, Mm -hmm. there is this kind of like judgment of who's allowed to help are you good enough to help us? And I'm like, where the fuck? Where the fuck do we think we are? How well do we think things are going for sure. the oppressed that we can be like, mm, yeah, but 10 years ago you made a mistake. And so like, even though you really want to help now and you want to do better and you have all this stuff that you can do that'd be helpful. We just think, no, like next, who else? Who else is coming? It's like mm, people like there's any, it's a finite amount of resources. Yeah, flip, the flip side of that coin is like, is the thing of like, this person did this really cool thing well, but that person also did this less cool thing a long time ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, this congratulations. No one is perfect. You've, you've identified the fact yeah. that no one is perfect. Now, of course, sometimes the, the uncool thing that these people did is so uncool that it really matters. Of and course. then you're like, okay, well, hold on a second. This is, you know, there. but what we're bad at right now is understanding degrees and nuance. We're, and we're not good at parsing the difference between someone who did something human and flawed and explicable and someone who is a true monster. Yeah, and irrevocable that, damage. That, yes, we need to get better at that. But 100%. I, I also believe that like the the title of the book is literally a joke, right? Because we all have to understand that no one, that perfection is impossible and it's not even really a good goal to try to achieve. No, the whole show taught us like just try to be better tomorrow than you were today. And that was why so many people watched it like truly 15 times during the pandemic. <laughs> um, I rewatched it, everyone I know rewatched it. And it was like just such a comforting, a comforting reminder that humans can improve. And also the overriding message is just if people put their differences aside and work together, they can get to a better place. That's what the entire, you could couldn't have more individually diff- different and impossible people to stick together in this ridiculous challenge that goes on for literally got an unknown amount of time. Jeremy Berrimi after Jeremy <laughs> Berrimi. And uh, and they were able to make an improvement because we we decided to just work as a group. What was your what were some of your like favorite moments of our show? Oh man. I mean, there were so many. The end of season one, I think, was executed as well as 
as I could have imagined it being. I true, you know, my daughter has watched the show. She's 11 and she's watched the show a number of times. And she and I were laughing literally yesterday about the Janet's episode at the end when they're fleeing from the accountants and, and, uh, Michael says, um, uh, I need someone, uh, I need you to do something really dangerous that has a very low chance of success and which might end up in you, like, you know, the world ending or whatever. And then Jason says, that's most of what the stuff I did on Earth. And he goes, great, get in the tube. And then Jason's response is, oh, hell yeah, I love getting in stuff. And then jumps into the mail tube. <laughs> that, that I think that Janet's episode, which was so weird and bizarre, um, had so had was such a key moment in the show, not just because Darcy was incredible and did a great yeah. job, but also because it is the real beginning of the end game. It's the moment that they all realize that the um, that the the world it, the, as they understand it is completely screwed up and needs to be fixed. Um, and then I think the finale, everything about the finale, I love. Mm-hmm. The finale is really, I think, very beautiful. I loved. When we came up, when we realized what the story of the finale was going to be and we thought it through in terms of each character, I remember thinking that, man, we have the right answer for all of these people. Like Jason was going to kind of end up being a monk um, by waiting for Janet forever in that in that weird sort of liminal space between the good place and whatever comes next. I We came up with the idea for Tahani's end of like, she was a person who never really did anything herself. And it was like, she's going to spend eternity learning how to do everything, every mundane thing, every complicated thing, woodworking and oil painting and sculpture and, and, um, and how to fix a car and how to play tennis and everything else. And then she was going to feel like I'm not done yet. Now I want to do, I want to give back to people um, who are, who are in this tricky transition time in their lives by learning how to do what Michael does. And the attitude that she has in that moment where he's like, you're a human, it's not possible. And she's like, watch me. Like that was the, it was such a great end to her journey because she was a, a person who, who lived entirely for other people. And, and then suddenly she was just taking her, her existence by the reins and guiding it herself. I really love that ending for her. And unbeknownst uh, to us, like we created the slogan of the Karens via Tahani. I want to speak to your manager. Like yeah, that, that became well, <laughs> that became that is the like the the what is it? The bat signal of the Karens. Yes, that's right. I think Karen's and and folks had already been saying, I would like to speak to your manager. I think maybe it was a symbiotic thing where we we had used it from them and then they used it from us. A hundred percent. No, I'm only kidding. So uh, what do we owe to each other, Mike? That's the overall question throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. Do you have a simple answer for that? Is it just our best? If there is a simple answer to that question, it would be the one that TM Scanlon, uh, whose book is titled What We Owe to Each Other, um, his, his response would be to say, we owe it to each other to be able to justify our actions as being, um, as being reasonable. That's sort of what he would say, right? He would say that they, that you are not, um, you need to acknowledge first that we rely on each other for certain things, whether no matter what our attitude is about politics or government or the role of society or whatever, you cannot move through the world alone. You owe, um, you owe other people a certain baseline of respect and, um, and uh, responsibility, and they owe the same to you. And what I love about the title of his book and the reason it plays such a key role in the show is he doesn't say, do we owe things to each other? 
question mark. He says, this is we, what we owe to each other implies we know we owe things to each other. Now the question is, what are those things? And his answer again would be something like we owe each other the, um, the justification of our actions essentially. Like we owe it to each other to say when we act in, in certain ways, our actions are reasonable and justifiable as people who share the earth with each other, which I think is a pretty simple, straightforward, um, much needed line of thought. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's, um, he wrote that book 23 years ago or something, but it's amazing how it applies to the pandemic and to, you know, anything, anything that's happening in, in contemporary society. If you read that book and you understand it, which I barely do, um, you will, mm. you will marvel at how, um, what a good litmus test it is for action. You break it down in your book in a way that the rest of us can understand, even dummies like me. Um, <laughs> my last, last, last question is just something I've always wanted to ask you, uh, but I was too scared. In fact, I think the most, like, this is uh, this has been so fun getting to interview you during your book process because I've been able to, like, just sit down and chat and then have you hostage so I can just ask you all the questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, back to me. <laughs> Back to me, Mike. Um, so I always wanted to know at the final audition before I was going to go in and do the network test. So in, in Hollywood, you have to sign a seven year deal right before mm-hmm. you actually do the final audition for anyone who doesn't know, which is wildly uh, odd. You're, like, yeah. you're throwing away the next seven years of your life. And you're not throwing away, but you're like gambling on the next seven years of your life. And you don't even know if they want you or not. So I was there with a few other people we were all up for the kind of final round of auditions and you came into the room in which I was, uh, we, we all had our contracts. We were all about to sign them. And you came in and sat just kind of very gently on the side of the chair and were like, sorry, I, I know this is weird, but do you mind if I just sit here and just watch you sign the contract? It's just a thing I like to do. Right. And I was mm. like, oh, okay. Did you do that with everyone or did you do that? Cause you thought it was going to be me. <laughs> I was just um, curious. I, I, you know, it's funny. I don't, I have no memory of that at all. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, I, no, it I, wasn't a really poignant moment for me either. So that's fine. <laughs> no, that's well, fine. I don't think about it all the time. I, that's cool. I, it makes sense in a certain <laughs> way because there, there are moments in the creation of TV shows that are, um, that are kind of like, well, shit, this is really happening. You know, like it, it, what the, it's, it's like this, the stuff happens so fast and it's so, it's so hectic that there are, there are like, sometimes I find myself wanting to just like be, try to be very present and be very in the moment to say like, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know if this show is going to work or not work, if it's going to last for seven years or be killed after we make the pilot or what. But I do, I do, I have certainly in many instances tried to say to myself, like, like be very present right now and pay attention to what is happening because in the event that this becomes an important process or, or section of your life, you're going to want some images and some memories to hold on to. I did that when we were shooting the, the finale of season one. I did it when Drew, I have a video of the very first take of the very first scene that we ever did on the show, which was the flashback where Eleanor throws a piece of garbage at a at a at a trash can and misses and the guy says like hey you missed and she goes pick it up if you're so horny for the environment that line that was the very first thing we ever shot and i remember really thinking like watch this pay, be be in the moment pay attention like this could be the the thing that matters the most 
to you and your life for the next five years. And then I was right. So that sounds like the kind of thing I would have done for that reason, for just being like, I just want to remember. I mean, it apparently didn't work <laughs> because I don't remember it. But you don't um, remember doing it. It meant like it was so funny. It meant so much. I was like, oh, look at him. He's so sentimental. Like he's coming in to like. I do. Watch I will say that we signed the contract and. I remember I, I do. I mean, it like, freaked me out more actually before. I the do audition. like to go say hi to actors before screen tests because it's such a weird, unnatural thing. I, yeah. I and 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 because I think just being human in those moments and being like, "Hi, I'm a person. This is a silly thing we're doing. Let's all just re- try to relax." And I just want everyone to do their best work. I did that. I remember, like, I I remember. I do remember seeing you in your room. I don't remember saying that, but I remember. I I usually go in and say hi to the actors just for that reason, and I have a lot of memories in my life of like Lena Waith on Master of None. I remember chatting with her about, we ended up talking about like David Lynch and some weird people that she loved <laughs> and who were, who made movies. And, um, and I, and I, I have memories over the years of just like chatting amiably with people who I was about to unknowingly about to spend years of my life working with. So that's the reason I did it. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Mike, I have a billion other questions I wish I could ask you, but I can't because you have to go off and and do more amazing things and make more amazing shows. I think <laughs> I speak on behalf of everyone when I say thank you so much for making The Good Place. Thank you for writing this excellent book. Thank you for all of the great shows that you've given us and for your constant dedication to understanding people and then helping us understand ourselves thanks for giving me a job i had 17 dollars left in my bank account the day that you hired me i was absolutely fucked i really didn't know like where i was gonna live or how i was gonna live um you totally totally changed my life thank you for taking a chance on me even though i had no idea what i was doing and i was i'm such a disgusting person with such a terrible brain and you put up with that and gave me a chance. And let me speak on panels, which is such a terrible mistake. Yeah, um, that part I regret. Sorry for all of the filth. Um, but uh, you've, you've changed my life forever. And um, and anyone who, who doesn't like me now, it's your fault. So oh. I just wanted to say that on the record. No, fair enough. <laughs> um, you're the fucking best, and I can't wait to see what you're doing next. And everyone should go out, read this book, and maybe just rewatch The Good Place because the world is such a hellscape right now that it might be a nice <laughs> bit of escapism. Um, <laughs> lots of love, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Talk to you soon. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWay. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWayPodcast at gmail.com. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. Hi, my name is Haley, and I weigh being a musician. I started playing the flute when I was in the eighth grade. Uh, Right now, I'm entering my senior year of high school, and I worked as hard as I could to be as good as possible, and now I am in the top band of my school. It took a couple of years to get there, and I'm really excited about it, and I'm currently working on college audition music, and music has come, it's become my life and my passion, and yeah, so I weigh being a musician, talented musician at that, I'd say, yeah. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack, fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.